For July 4th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 157. Optimus, I just met a prime named Optimus. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, the capital of American patriotism, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink our favorite 4th of July release of all time, Jaws. (laughs) That's right. It's an all Jaws. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We're going to need a bigger podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to need a bigger panel. Uh, there are four of us. We are proud. We are mighty. And the question of the week is this. You know, there's this uh, Tom Cruise movie called Born on the Fourth of July, right? Um, so take the date that you were born, in my case, the 19th of June, and put that into a movie title. So, Born on the 19th of June. If Tom Cruise were to make a movie called that, what would it be about? <laughs> First, in the, and you're going to learn the you're going to learn the birthdays of some of your favorite overthinkers, so that you can send us uh, send us gifts. <laughs> you can <laughs> find our Amazon wish lists <laughs> every year, and uh, you know send send me that um, that multi volume Oxford English Dictionary I've been longing for for years and years and years. Uh, Pete Fenzel is first in the alphabet. Pete, what is your movie called first? My, my movie is called Born on the 15th of August. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a gripping kind of like, it's not, it's not a horror piece, but it's a suspense piece. Because Tom Cruise is entirely alone the entire movie. He's the only human being present as his town is deserted because everybody has gone to the Hamptons. And he's trying to have a birthday party, but nobody's around. Everyone's on vacation. <laughs> so he like wanders the streets. He has to like forage for food uh he has to like try to get to the chilies uh but he can't borrow his friend's car because his friend went to boca raton instead of coming to his birthday party it's it's a lot like i am legend by uh fourth of july king will smith uh, <laughs> but without the whole like sort of zombie angle and with more of sort of like uh hey hope you guys can make it tonight i'm having a couple of drinks kind of angle kind of thing um can you tell i was always the guy who never got to bring cupcakes to school because my birthday was in the dead of summer um sometimes you bring them in september but it's never the same maybe there's a scene where he tries that he tries to have a birthday party in september but it doesn't work because he was born on the 15th of august i mean the alternative is to make it about the feast of the assumption which is no fun at all <laughs> it's the holy day of obligation that commemorates the bodily raising of the virgin mary into heaven uh i'm sure tom cruise would love to make that given became, his religious affiliation that became yep. true that became true late in the 19th uh late in the 19th century Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that, exactly. Mary was assumed body and soul. And it, it was a retcon, sort of like the dark, like Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix saga. That's, exactly. what, that's how you explain papal infallibility to people who are geeks but who don't necessarily understand theology, is that it's, it's Catholicism's way of retconning, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, theological yep. truths into, uh, back into the canon. Excellent. Yep. Joshua McNeil, you are next in the alphabet. What day were you born and what is your film about? So, Born on November 11th is the the newest Tom Cruise movie. Uh, And uh, November 11th, otherwise known as Veterans Day, originally known as Armistice Day, because it was the day that uh, the Allies signed a treaty with Germany ending World War I. uh, Yeah, I know that holiday. In Britain, they call it November Bank Holiday. 
for uh, but, <laughs> no, they go uh, Poppy Day, right? <laughs> uh, I believe it's Remembrance Day, actually, which um, yeah. is very nonspecific. So I suppose everyone can celebrate that in Britain, no matter what you feel like remembering. Um, the I mean, the I'm jokes, the that, Remembrance Day, the jokes just write themselves. What day is it today? Oh, God, I forgot. What are we supposed to do today? <laughs> oh, I, I remember. <laughs> uh, so Tom Cruise, I've noticed, has sort of like made a lot of movies over and over and over again. So in this one, I'm imagining that he is a, a high-ranking officer in the Kaiser's army who is actually involved in a plot to kill Commander Paul von Hindenburg. Uh, <laughs> And thus bring Germany down because it's gone too far. Um, but he ultimately fails, and nobody actually watches the movie, uh, much like Valkyrie. <laughs> does he have an eye patch in your movie, or does he wear like a monocle because it's just a little bit older? He's actually <laughs> deaf in one ear, so he's just got like a big cone that he holds up to his ear. When he- <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, what, what sort of is it not? It's not Valkyrie, right? So it's like, is there another? It's like Dormagant? No, like what? What other kind of? <laughs> Like lesser Norse thing is there? Although Jormagant is greater than a Valkyrie, I don't want to mess around with people's sense for Norse mythology. But um, yeah, is there like a lesser thing than a Valkyrie that it can be? Like Tom, a, Ice, Tom, like Tom Cruise, Ice Giant. <laughs> That's Cruise. all I'm coming up with. Tom Cruise in Nibelungen. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see the the cone in his ear, like whoa! That's awesome. <laughs> I like it a lot. I like it a lot. Uh, John Parrish, next in the alphabet. What is your movie called? All right, so I, I have to do this one backwards. So this posits a Tom Cruise at some point in the future who has sort of fallen apart due to perhaps arrests for public intoxication or, you know, a very public breakup with his, his lovely wife, Katie Holmes. And as a result, his reputation is sort of on the decline. So one of his Hollywood buddies has to make a film for him, a la Mel Gibson in The Beaver, where he plays a sort of, you know, goofy comical role, but it's serious and dramatic and passionate. So Tom Cruise plays someone who has lost everything, like lost a successful banking job or something along those lines, and finds finds new meaning as a clown entertaining uh, entertaining children or, uh, no, sorry, entertaining disabled children. So he specifically caters to disabled children and through giving them the gift of laughter, rediscovers what it truly means to be human in the touching movie Born on April 1st. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, do you think you'd release the movie on April 2nd just to mess with people? You'd be like, oh, <laughs> not coming out now. Tricked you <laughs> tricked you and then you can like laugh at the investors who invested in the movie and you lost all this money because you didn't release it on time and everybody's really mad but we'd announce the release date as april 1st but people who showed up on the first to see it would instead be shown born on the 4th of july (laughs) i like it i like it it would probably be really traumatic for any really young children who went to see it but you know that's their problem People have to learn about Vietnam, man. It's not a, a casual thing. It's not the kind of thing that you shouldn't learn about at a birthday party. People, like, people need to learn about being jerked around by prank holidays. Yeah, exactly. How are they, if they don't learn it from us, they're going to learn it on the streets, and that's not acceptable. So. Uh, I guess I'm the, I'm the last one. Um, born on the 19th of June is a, uh, is a gripping conspiracy story where Tom Cruise uh, race, races against the clock to undo a secret government conspiracy uh, to rob him of his rightful Zodiac sign. 
because uh, <laughs> as you may know <laughs> that recently uh, the uh, the fields of astronomy and astrology converged in a uh, in a real barn burner and um, and uh, so that uh, when w- for example uh, uh, my my astrological sign which had been Gemini because uh, I'm born on June 19th is now apparently Taurus because uh, due to the gravitational pull of the moon on the earth um, the stars are not in the same position that uh, uh, that they were in when you know the kind of astrology we use what western astrology was formulated so uh I, I, not, not to nitpick but i'm pretty sure the stars are where they're supposed to be yeah well no it's the it's the earth that is changed <laughs> position and so relative to the earth i guess um you know uh, so re- relative to the earth so so uh i i would rather be a gemini uh which is awesome than a taurus um which, which is you know, I don't know. One of America's best-selling automobiles? Yeah, <laughs> RoboCop drove a Taurus. That's got to be something. Right? I remember Nintendo Power offered to give away one of the Tauruses that had been driven by RoboCop in one of their prize uh, giveaways once. They gave out the weirdest prizes. Like, I remember there's a guy on the internet who, like, who still has the... Uh, the um the phone booth from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's like Nintendo Power would just like go to the dumpsters outside of the places where they were <laughs> making the movies, and they would like pick up these like large awkward props and like give them away to people who wrote them, uh, who sent them little postcards telling them what Game Boy games they liked best. So uh, yeah, pretty funny stuff. But I remember that giveaway very well. I don't know who won it unfortunately, but uh, but yeah, so, Matt. Matt, why do you prefer uh, why do you prefer Gemini? I just I don't, I'm trying to think of like famous Gemini's uh, or or like good Gemini things, and all I've got is one of the weaker villains from one of the early Mega Man games. Uh, <laughs> well, let's see. Um, uh, Basil Rathbone, famous Gemini, Joe Montana, uh, <laughs> born on on June 11th in 1956. Let's MC Escher. Famous Gemini, both Dean Martin uh, and Barry Manilow, uh, Igor, oh, wow. Strze- Igor Stravinsky. <laughs> uh, that is a smooth evening of classy dudes. Mario Cuomo, Jim Belushi, and Joyce Carol Oates. Oh uh, man! Is wow. it? Uh, let's see. Guy Lombardo is a uh, is a, the band leader. Is a um, uh, Gemini. Salman Rushdie, Kathleen Turner. Paula Abdul, Errol Flynn. Well, that was a really like steep decline you just went through, and then there was Errol Flynn. <laughs> yeah, Nicole Kidman. So, so and, question, question about the the astrological. Oh, oh, sorry. Did you want to keep listing celebrities who happen to be born in, in Gemini? Absolutely, I do. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll yield the floor to you. Okay. So, question about the the astrological retcon as you as you bring up from this past what was it October November whenever it happened. Yeah, about. The- uh, who who made who made that call? Like, are the astrologers of the world that tightly knit that they have a like a labor union or a council or a dark cabal or something that they all got together and were like, okay, no, this is going to be it? Or did the New York Times astrology column make the call and everyone else sort of had to fall in the line because oh, it's the Gray Lady? They sort of they sort of set the pace. I think the astrologers were actually really against it. Like the astronomers came out and said, "This is what has happened," and then some journalists wrote some stories, and then the astrologers had to go like refigure out their whole thing. Really? So like the the real science stepped up and was like, "No, hey, fake science, you got to catch up. Come on, guys." 
Yeah, I think so. And 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 the astrologers, like you know, the Catholic Church, were like, "Sit down, Galileo." But but the astronomers <laughs> now have more power. Well, don't worry. That that one day will change, I'm sure. But in the meantime, we li- we live in the age where the tyranny of of reason and empiricism and documentable proof still holds sway. I suppose. Really, sir. <laughs> oh, I thought we lived in the age of Transformers. That's what I thought we lived in. Mm-hmm. The age of the mega blockbuster, the age of fantasy and robots and, and hyper-real imaginations of human experience. Speaking, uh, of, speaking of fantasy and robots, how about... <laughs> oh, wait, no, wait, that's how you started. Damn. <laughs> so, so I think what we set out to talk about here is sort of like calendars and movies, right? Because we were looking through before the podcast about all the different movies that are released on the 4th of July and kind of like what, how they shape our idea of the passage of the years, I suppose, and like how they shape the idea of the holiday or like what movies they are or who is in them and all that other stuff. Like there was definitely sort of a numerology to it, right? To what we were talking about uh, and why we brought this up in the first place. Yeah. July 4th was, I guess traditionally the the start of summer blockbuster season. You know, summer blockbusters only really dating back uh, what thirty something years at this point. And of course, summer blockbuster season now starts in April, thanks to you know the continued efforts of the Hollywood studios. But it was yeah, Jaws, it, right? Jaws was, was like, considered the first yeah, one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was the first. I mean, and the idea of blockbuster, the you know, it's busting the block. It's you know, line around the block or line exceeding the block. I think that's how the block is busted. In a blockbuster, how is the block busted? I think it's by the well, line for the movie exceeding the the length of the block that no, the movie the, theater is on, right? The term blockbuster comes from a, a type of military. Uh, it's it's a type of bomb, like the blockbuster bomb. It was a type of. Uh, non-nuclear incendiary bomb dropped from airplanes in World War II. So a, a movie being a blockbuster is like a movie having a dynamite showing or, you know, a movie blowing up sales records. I, I, I got to say, I like, my, uh, I like my etymology better. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I will concede. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't have to. It's, it's okay. It's an I'm okay, you're okay kind of thing. We can all, you know. <laughs> See, I, thought, I thought it came from the 1975 smash hit that started the whole craze of blockbusters, which is Tetris the movie, right, which came out, back, which came out of Soviet Russia. People don't really know that the Russians had blockbusters before we did because they yes. had their advanced computer technology. Which was that was adapted from a short story by Dostoevsky, as I recall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> About the futility of stacking. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's called Z-shaped blocks and straight blocks. It's like, wait, that doesn't quite work. In Russian, it makes a lot more sense. It like rhymes and stuff. It's, uh, it, it doesn't really get translated all that well. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a classic of, of spiritual, you know, sort of the Russian kind of spiritual malaise of the period. Yeah, exactly. Uh, definitely. You know, and then you keep waiting for that straight block to show up and waiting for that straight block to show up. And then when it actually does show up and you get it one block over to the left, like, I mean, it's that's a brutal feeling, man. That's part of the human condition. We've all been there. Definitely. Oh, waiting for the straight <laughs> block to show up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, definitely. I, I was there on a first generation Game Boy. And more recently, I was there on my uh, laptop computer, you know, and on, on pretty much mm-hmm. every device in between. I've been there uh, playing some some version of a Tetris like game waiting for the straight block to show up. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, a, that's, a, like, that's a game that has not translated well to the iPhone. I don't know if, if you all have played it, but it's actually a lot easier when you just point your finger at where you want the block to go. <laughs> like, it takes a lot of the skill out of it. It's just like, no, hey, this block goes here. 
And uh, <laughs> so long as you have like the fundamentals of hand-eye coordination, Tetris is like not nearly as challenging as once you it can, was. You can YouTube search for people playing like arcade Tetris at incredible speeds, and it's uh, it's really inspiring. Oddly, I watched a lot of uh, watched a lot of Tetris over the course of one afternoon mm. uh, not too long ago, and uh, the people who are good at it are really good at it. I mean, admittedly, it is a minor art, but no no artist of any size you know ever called another artist minor. I would like to take a moment to address Hollywood and the, specifically the television networks and say, this man watched an afternoon of Tetris videos. <laughs> Get your act together and put out some better content, Hollywood. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, Dharma and Greg, come on. <laughs> like, like, there sh- like, Dharma and Greg should be good enough that you should want to watch it rather than videos of people playing Tetris. But it wasn't, and they made it for 155 years. So... <laughs> Speaking of, speaking of better content, how, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't even say what you can speak with that. I, I really tried. So I, I guess I guess the consensus is, by the fact that I've tried to segue to this twice, that uh, there's really there's really nothing we can overthink about Transformers Three. It's uh, it just sort of defies critical analysis. What do you think of this of this Michael Bay letter to uh, uh, to projectionists about like making sure that the light is bright enough because you know the, the the problem with 3D movies is that the uh, the lenses that they put on in order to polarize the two images in different uh, uh, what orthogonal to one another the, um, those uh, those lenses cut down the amount of light and so 3D looks dingy compared with 2D movies. Of course 2D looks dingy too because very often they actually just leave those filters on the digital projectors and uh, you know project the the uh, the 2D movie through the 3D filter that is cutting down the light. I know we have some projectionists in the audience so I'm I'm sure I'm going to get well actually uh uh on this. So I think that's please podcast is overthinking it dot com. But uh, so Michael Bay wrote this wrote this thing saying, guys, please show it, uh, show it brighter. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think your take is largely accurate, and I think Michael Bay's letter is pretty obviously a response to a lengthy article or blog post that Roger Ebert wrote, summarizing mostly the points you made, Matt. And so it's it's interesting. It's a sort of it's it's a sort of like open dialogue aimed at the audience and aimed at the professionals, but primarily between one, you know, a critic of some weight, Roger Ebert, and on the other hand, a producer of some weight, Michael Bay. So it's a it's a very interesting sort of contretemps, if you will, between the critical analytical audience side and the technical production directing side. Mm. It was the. Uh- was the projector brightness Roger Ebert's primary criticism no, of Transformers a, it 3? Was, it, it, the, the article had actually nothing to do with Transformers 3. It was an article about the state of projection in, uh, ah. in America. Because, like, it's, you don't think about it because, you know, you, what, you sort of assume that movies are, are as easy as, like, putting the DVD into the TV. And um, if you've ever fiddled with the brightness and contrast and color temperature settings on your TV, it... it that's a rabbit hole that you really don't want to go down to, um, but it's it it remains an art uh, the the art of the forgotten art of the projectionist, um, you know the that lonely soul up in the uh, up in the booth all by him or herself, uh, you know, uh, ensuring that our movies are crisp and bright and in focus and uh, and have that single frame of porn spliced into them. 
<laughs> um, Fight Club style. The, uh, you know, so the other famous letter to projectionists is a letter that Stanley Kubrick wrote um, to projectionists uh, about the film Barry Lyndon. Uh, on December 8th, 1975, and I'd like to read a little bit of it to you. Oh, and so I think that, that Michael Bay is kind of actually like, he may see himself as kind of following in the tradition of Stanley Kubrick uh, in, uh, <laughs> in making Transformers 3 and haranguing the projectionist about how it's, um, how it's uh, uh, screened. So, uh, Dear Projectionist, colon. Uh, writes Stanley Kubrick. Ooh, ooh, um, business style. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> the font on this letter, which you can, if you just Google Stanley Kubrick letter to projectionist, uh, is uh, Futura. It's very, uh, it's a very sort of um, European-looking uh, typeface. An infinite amount of care, he writes, was given to the look of Barry Lyndon, the photography, the sets, the costumes, and in the care- uh, careful color grading and overall lab quality of the prints and the soundtrack. All of this work is now in your hands, and your attention to sharp focus, good sound, and the careful handling of the film will make this effort worthwhile. Now, that's an exhortation that, uh, you know, if it were necessary, uh, the battle is already lost. You know what I mean? If, if, you have to tell, if you have to tell someone who's doing a job, hey, it's important that you do your job and you do it well, if that person needs that reminder... Uh, then, then we already live in a world that I, I, I don't necessarily, uh, I don't really want to live in, right? I, dis- I disagree. I mean, diligence comes on. Diligence isn't an on-off switch. It's a sliding scale. There are, you know, there are various various minor tasks you have to do in your day-to-day work, and some of them are mission critical. Some of them are nice to have, and some of them are just inherited from the last person to hold your role. And I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with someone pointing out, hey, this is one of the critical steps. Please make sure you have this brightness level set the way it should be versus, hey, you know, signing in and out of this logbook at the end of the day is just so, you know, nobody steals frames out of the, out of the, uh, out of the film reel because, you know, that used to happen back when we were showing much more pornographic movies. <laughs> it's also about leadership, right? About like people wanting to feel like the thing that they do does matter to people. And maybe it's a, a mark less uh, of the failure of the projectionist and more a mark of the failure of the, of the sort of commercial leadership of movie theaters, right? For, or like at least like the sort of uh, representational leadership of, of the projectionist craft, right? That he doesn't think that there's that Stanley Kubrick, who is not a projectionist, has to sort of stand up and tell these people that they need to do their jobs. Um, because there's nobody else who's doing it, right? Everyone wants to be reminded that what they're doing is important. But anyway, well, that's can... the read. Yeah, that's that's the read on it. That uh, that sure. Okay, I buy that. I buy what you're saying. That the 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 kind of the the message, uh, John and Pete, you seem to be saying is that hey. Don't forget that you are an important part of this equation. You are not, uh, you know, just a cog in the machine. You are, you are, in a sense, uh, you know, the, the critical component. Um, but being told it in a form it's letter just, is also kind of... And that, <laughs> yeah. It's also, yeah, right? Yeah. It's also, well, he accompanied it by a, a personal phone call to every projection. No, he didn't. That's, um, <laughs> that's a lie. But, uh, it's, uh, John, it's just I, to me there's... Go ahead. No, uh, point three... Uh, of the 10 points that he makes in his letter is that there should be no less than 15 foot Lamberts of light on the screen and no more than 18. So you're right about the brightness levels. Yeah, and uh, I, I've since Googled uh, Michael Bay's letter to projectionists, and he specifically calls out the 
uh, that, you know, the, the newest version of Transformers for the ultimate in 3D experience should be played in auditoriums, quote, capable of six-foot Lamberts of light on the screen, available to certified auditoriums only, close quote. So apparently that's important, although he doesn't specify anywhere else in the letter what the the regular 3D version of Transformers should be played at. So kind of a, a kind of a half-hearted gesture on Bay's part. You know, it, would, it, would it kill him to put in a few bullet points saying, hey, if you have this version played at this brightness level? The, um, or at least something inspirational like, you know, deep down we're all Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a way. To, to me, to me like, the, there are two things that work here. One is like you're, writing, you're a director, you're writing this letter. You're thinking like, who are they more likely to listen to and do their job well? Like Michael Bay or like, Herbert, the manager of the local AMC chain? <laughs> And I think they're probably right on that score. Like, you know, the, you know, Herbert's been telling you to get the focus right the whole like the whole three months you've worked at the movie theater. But like, wow, I got a letter from Michael Bay. And most of the projectionists these days have never actually seen a physical letter before. That's not true. I think that I think one of the things that came out about this letter uh, is that sort of projectionists started coming out of the woodwork and saying that letters like this are a little bit more common than people think. They're just not usually news. Um, it, compared to what Michael Bay did, Pixar is much more active. They actually, I believe it was for Up, but I'm not sure exactly what movie. But they would hold like a, they had like a contest where they would like randomly go to movie theaters to see if the projectionist was projecting the movie uh, correctly. And if the projectionist was projecting the movie correctly, that projectionist would get entered into a contest and, and they get a chance to come visit the Pixar studios if they won. And there was swag that he give out, like T-shirts and stuff. Um, I think this Michael Bay letter is getting attention because it's almost – we're almost like – we're sort of surprised and kind of pleased that Michael Bay cares because, like, it's sort of part of his <laughs> mythological character that he cares about nothing and nobody other than, like, his falling filing cabinets and Sheila LaBeouf. You know, like, oh, you got to get out of here. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Ah, run, run. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Uh, I've I, that was that was one of my favorite uh, podcast moments. Was when we played the audio clip from the trailer to Transformers <laughs> Two, and it just sounds like Sheila Booth trying to get a filing cabinet up the stairs. But um, but no, but I think that I think that, um, that one of the ways that a projectionist could well actually us on this is say I I'm a projectionist. I've gotten letters from all of these different studios or whatever telling me what they need me to do. Um, but it is cool that Michael Bay's, you know, cachet and wi- widely perceived incompetence and hostility is what brings this to our attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think part of it is I think the letter from Michael Bay is also kind of stilted. I mean, the letter from Stanley Kubrick is like is like egotistical and comes across as kind of condescending. It is. The letter well, from, it's also, yeah. yeah, it's the letter of like a of a uh, of a real nerd. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Of like a real nerd who cares about the thing he cares about and doesn't care what you think of him. You know, right. uh, for it's the letter. It's the letter of an artist to a technician. Sure, mm-hmm. which is you know, yeah, that's fair. If you've ever hung out with artists, it um, can be quite annoying. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so another do, thing. There's another thing they're running into here. I, I didn't have any fun at your house either, Josh. I know. <laughs> Um, and that was by design. The, um, <laughs> but they're running into like the classic waiter problem, too, which is like, you know, do you send the food back if it's not great? Because like then like you run the risk of like your, your options are maybe your food gets better or maybe it gets spat on. And I figured like by sending this letter, maybe the projectionist like, you know, f- focuses up a little bit better. Or maybe it's like just that much more annoyed that you're bugging him and like, you know licks the lens or whatever you know the, the equivalent would be. <laughs> i don't know this it's, is this is a, this is i think a, a a a you know 
a human problem. I think everybody runs into this, which is like yeah, it's, the, it's the, part, the cost it's, benefit of complaint, right? It's part of it's part of the eternal struggle. I was going to say between management and labor, but Michael Bay doesn't really qualify as management in this in this org chart. I guess between between a, a person on the the middle to low end of the supply chain and a much 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 farther down the line customer of of sort of giant process because Michael Bay's relationship to a given projectionist is it's it's commercial but only in the most tenuous of chains and that money changed hands at various points in various ways such that a film he designed got on a reel and that reel is now in the projectionist's hands but other than that the connection between the two is is almost non-existent so the projectionist has no obligation at all to obey what what michael bay requests of of him or her so i i guess the what what language should Michael Bay have used, or is the language he used sufficient to compel the projectionist to to treat this art, and I'm going to call it art for the sake of argument, in such a way? See, that's an interesting question. How do you how do you get the projectionist to do it? Right? How do you, how do you? And so, gosh, right. I'm, I'm, so what are the different leadership styles you could use? Uh, I mean, the first leadership style. I mean, one of one of my favorite. Uh, quotations on the matter is there's there's three ways to lead uh, by example by example and by example uh, right and so and so one thing that michael bay could do that is he could like record a, what yeah, pete that sounds like gym teacher wisdom yeah there's a, i have a lot i love gym teacher wisdom <laughs> i wanted to start a website once of gym teacher wisdom it's the best um but michael bay could have recorded a video of himself like in a projectionist booth with a projectionist like being like oh like this is really cool what you're doing like this is how you fix the lens and that's how it works that's great that's awesome and you should you should come see transformers because it's going to be projected great um you know sort of lead from the front of your army like caesar rather than from the back uh and then but you could also what you could also try to oh go ahead I was going to say, lead from the back, like, Patton. <laughs> I guess it's a little bit different when the front of your army is tanks. But uh, you're just, like, running alongside them. <laughs> hey, guys! Hey, guys! Although you'd have to be in a tank, too, I suppose. But then you wouldn't be able to see much. Um, but, yeah. but So you could do that. You could try to be nice to them. You could try to, you know, make them afraid of you. But Michael Bay can't really do that. Because part of it, I think, is that the move, the projectionists aren't making enough money, right? So it doesn't get treated as a profession because they're being paid like minimum wage or close to it um, by the movie theaters. And, and so as such, like there's not really a threat. It's all I'm going to lose my job and have to go find another minimum wage job where I'm disrespected and, and spat on and have to like, you know, every, the only time anyone ever notices me is when like there's a huge technical problem that causes me to like get in trouble. That isn't really my fault. One of the big problems with this whole thing is the DRM that's on the movie theater, the movie projectors now, the computerized security systems on the projectors that are there to prevent projectionists from pirating the movie, uh, make it much more laborious and complicated to change a lot of the hardware. At least that's what I've been told. And that um, the people aren't trained adequately to do, to do it. So, some people say it's easy. Some people say it's hard. Um, but, like, if you do it wrong, the projector can lock out. And uh, if it does that, you can't see the, show the movies. Um, so it's like a cop. There's a copyright protection angle to all this. And the projectionists are just being vilified, and they don't get rewarded for it. I mean, there's some places where good projectionists are still worth something to the, to the movie theaters, but it's not in most places. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. Projectionists are unionized, aren't they? They're not, they're not kind of part of the, like, the popcorn-slinging, ticket-taking summer job uh, labor force of the movie of oh really theaters. oh interesting okay well then maybe I was wondering how many projectionists do you think your average movie theater employs like uh, do you think they employ a lot of them or have you ever worked in a movie theater 
No, and uh, I know we have some listeners who have or who do, and I would I would really be interested. Like, all, I'd almost like want to have someone like that on on the podcast as a guest uh, who could fill us in on some of the details. Wouldn't that be interesting? Mm-hmm. That would be interesting, definitely. Um, Projectionists, we are all in this together. Your <laughs> your experience will help us deliver the most perfect podcast imaginable. Please invest your time and attention in helping us talk to our listeners. Thank you, Michael Bay. Yeah. I mean, here's a, I'm looking at an article right now from Time Out London uh, from May, which talks about how they're trying to automate, increasingly automate the job of the projectionist by making more of the routines on the, on the uh, camera's uh, software software routine so that you don't need as many people to do this many people to do this stuff because you know if it's film you have to actually change the reels right which you don't necessarily have to do if it's digital um but yeah i mean it, it is kind of telling that this is the conversation we're having about transformers the movie right <laughs> that like that we're more interested about this whole like sort of political argument about like uh the way that this kind of movie is defacing this few things that remain holy about the cinematic experience than about the movie's merits <laughs> itself um because i think i don't know that it's weird because Michael Bay clearly cares more about how this thing looks than pretty much anything else in the movie, right? Yeah. I so, uh, I understand. Kid. I understand is he cares a lot about Rosie Huntington Whitley's ass and, <laughs> oh. and giant shape shifting robots. Everything else, kind of a wash. Um, it, I'm surprised that this hasn't become like because the the value proposition of movie theaters is kind of shifting to like it's this bespoke luxury experience with your like leather captain's chair and your you know I don't know your special food made of unicorn tears and uh, uh, black truffles you know that's delivered to you. Uh, so that's what they make that weird popcorn butter out of. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, that's delivered to you at your seat. That it's going to be this. Um, it's this, uh, you know, very bespoke, uh, you know, sort of luxury experience now. And that's how the, the movie theaters are, are trying to, like, uh, regain some ground against, what, the flat screen television and, uh, you know, people who would just rather, rather stay home. And also how they're, they're justifying the ever-rising ticket prices. So um, I'm surprised that, that, like, at these, these theaters, I don't know, we have one called the Arclight in Hollywood, uh, or the landmark in LA that it, the, where it's you know this is a luxury theater going experience. I'm surprised that they're not uh, making the quality of the projection um, part of the uh, part of the sell. You know as to why this is such a good experience that's worth you know fifteen dollars a ticket. Yeah, I mean you'll get that in a small art house theater that's trying to show, but like, oh, we have a you know a great new thirty five millimeter print that hasn't been shown in a long time of like Taxi oh, yeah. Driver. Yeah, I yeah, went yeah. to the new art theater in L A. to see a uh, to see a seventy millimeter print, a new newly struck seventy millimeter print of two thousand one, a Space Odyssey. Um, and everyone who was there was like very congratulate was you know very admiring of themselves, including me, uh, as, <laughs> you know, as to like uh, uh, how you know what a cineast they were uh, for you know coming to do this thing. I'm not really surprised that the, the projection hasn't become an issue because it seems like that's a it's a wee bit technical. For most people, you know, like you know, it's one of those things that you can yeah you can say it's you know. 3,000 units of whatever, and, and people aren't really going to know the difference. Um, well, you may as well tell them it's, you, it's over 9,000. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it seems to me that before the quality of the projection, the quality of films really needs to be the first, 
first thing that they look at in terms of getting movie theater uh, attendance back up. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, but the the uh, the exhibitors don't have a ton of control over that, you know. I think they do. Or they how could. so? <laughs> how could They're, they do that? Well, it's sort of like the Walmart model. You know, Walmart basically determines what products get made these days by, you know, because they are the the ultimate um, distribution center for so many products that they can essentially tell Samsung, no, we don't want that and we want that. And Samsung will just produce that second, you know, whatever Walmart wants. If the, uh, if the theater owners ever really sort of got together and, you know, said, we're not going to show this, you know, Ryan Reynolds romantic comedy um, instead, we're going to, you know, show these these other ones. Uh, they could they could actually wield quite a bit of authority, I think. Well, they, uh, that, that a, oh, sorry, you go first, John. I've been that presumes a universe other than the one we inhabit, uh, because the, in reality, the the power dynamic is almost completely inverted. I mean, if if by nothing else, you can take a look at the the revenue distribution. Whereas almost, for instance, almost all of a movie's first weekend or I think first two weekends take goes to the studios. The exhibitors keep almost none of it, if any. So that's why, that's why a, a popcorn costs twenty three dollars, right? And so that's just emblematic of where the power really lies. I mean, the power lies with Paramount and Sony Pictures and the other big studios, not with not with the exhibitors. Which, I mean, it would be nice if it were more equitable, or if it went the other way, because then you know there would be more of an emphasis on customer experience. I mean, say what you will of Walmart, they've they've decided their their goal is to deliver the the most quantity of products at the lowest possible price and they really win that fight. And you might see something similar with movie theaters, but that is not that is not the case. Walmart doesn't really do that though. Walmart doesn't really have these like bargain these like totally low prices. Walmart offers strategic low prices based on the extensive research that they have because they the big thing Walmart does is it tracks everything right and it tracks what uh, what merchandise comes and goes at what price and it organizes its stores in such a way as to sort of optimize the shopping experience for them. Um, so people are drawn in by particular items that are cheap, you know, either temporarily or in a certain way, and then they make it up by buying other things that aren't as cheap. True. Walmart's I mean, not like a bargain store. True. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I should, yeah, they, they have lost leaders, and then they have their big ticket items. The same, as, the same as any big box store, like Target does this, Best Buy does this. Walmart is, is perhaps better at it than anyone else in the world, yeah. but it's, it's common, yes. And yeah, can, and, but, yeah, go ahead. You can see the dynamic between the, the uh, uh, movie studios and the uh, motion picture exhibitors in this, this recent fight that they had about, um, oh, the, the studios want to do day-and-date releases with video on demand, where, like, this weekend I could pay 40 bucks to see, um, to do pay-per-view to see Transformers 2 at home instead of, instead of going to the theaters. And the, uh, I guess the exhibitors were threatening to boycott, and it went nowhere, and, uh, you know, the revolution, was, the revolution was, mm. was quashed. But I'm talking about, I, I guess I was talking more about uh, a level of, of movie exhibitor that is not the Walmart of movie exhibitors and is more the, you know, I don't know, the Bergdorf Goodmans of, of movie exhibitors, you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, seems like it seems like the growth in the sector is happening at the, the very sort of high end end of it, right? Like, rather than, you know, your, your AMC Mall 24plex, uh, it's happening in these 
well, like I say, these like stadium seating, leather seating, uh, you know, luxury cinema, five thousand uh, kind of places, and that that seems to be the the um, oh, you know, where you can take a beer into the movie theater, or you can uh, I don't know have food delivered to you or something like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call that growth. I mean, unless you mean growth in some sense other than financial growth. And why would why would why would anyone talk about growth in senses other than financial? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's where progress is being made, but I don't know that it's happening. It's happening in enough places or in enough volume to really be the direction the industry is heading. It's you know it's it's moving at the margins, and maybe we'll see more of that. But it's it's such an expensive experience to create. For the audience, that I don't, I don't know if we'll see it in any sort of volume to replace the the gigaplex movie theaters, and as such, I don't know if it'll really change the industry. I mean, boutiques well, are be- boutiques, but yeah, go ahead. Well, they're sort of it's it's sort of trying to emulate a theater experience, right? The idea is to to class it up and to make it something like, to make it a destination that you you know, it's not just something you would do in an afternoon; it's something you may even dress up for. Hey, I was I was at the theater last night, and they would not let me bring a beer in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think well, there's I mean, there's one big unspoken thing about all this, which is, I mean, do people really want to see movies that aren't this? Right? Like, I mean, we can complain until we're blue in the face about how, like, oh, we wish that the movies were better and the movie is so bad. Oh, it's just got robots. Like, oh. I mean, like, people want to watch the Transformer movies, even if they're terrible, right? I mean, like, they're, they vote with their feet more than they do with their mouths. And maybe people also like to complain, right? And they like to, they like hating the celebrities and they like, God knows, sort of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I don't know. I mean, also, we got to remember, like, who is, you know, who are these movies for and who are they, where are they supposed to make their money? I mean, there are theaters that show movies that aren't these movies, and they don't make as much money as the theaters that show these movies, right? Um, well, we, we, we want the spectacle, and we're willing to pay for the spectacle. Yeah. But, you know, just spending the extra 50 grand on a screenwriter to me seems like it, it's just it's, uh, it's where they've chosen to save money. Well, no, they and, they, and they, they spend credloads of money on screenwriters. The Transformers: <laughs> Dark of the Moon probably had like a bazillion screenwriters at one point or another, right? Because it got passed around from one person to one person to another person. So let's and, let's and see how of, many. Well, go ahead. All of the work is on display in that two hours and thirty eight minutes or whatever, <laughs> or whatever the runtime is. Tree of Life. Tree of Life is one hundred and twenty eight minutes. Transformers: Dark of the Moon is longer, and I I I don't know. Yeah, but, but Transformers: Dark of the Moon has the same amount of dialogue as like the last, you know, Star Trek porn parody. I mean, it's like you, you know, there are like fifteen lines of dialogue in this movie, and then it's then there's things being blown up uh, if it follows the you know its predecessors at all. I'm just, I guess it's, uh, and this is a common complaint. I'm not saying anything new here. I don't, you know, I, I want to go see the explosions, but I would, you know, I would, I'd be much more willing to part with my eleven bucks. If there was also some character development and, you know, some plot that sort of held together, which I feel like sort of we had. I mean, looking back at these this list of other summer movies, most of them were pretty good about that. The, um, you know, we're talking about things like Back to the Future, you know, which was spectacular, but also had characters you could really get into and, and writing that was really good. Um even the Men in Black movies from like a more recent time were first one more than the latter, but you know it was was engaging and interesting, and you cared about the characters. And it's just you can do both. Um, and Michael Bay, in particular, and a lot of other directors seem to have just abandoned one um, for reasons I don't understand. 
Well, because it's it's not what they're interested in. They're interested in spectacle, and I'll be I'll be more charitable here than I usually am. Maybe it's the rum talking, but I mean, say <laughs> you will say what you will of Michael Bay. He he has he has a vision. It, we might consider it a pretty picayune, immature sort of puerile, you know, sexy ladies and exploding robots and racist stereotypes vision. But he clearly has something in mind that he wants to put on screen. So and he's decent at doing that. So yeah. it it takes it takes you know it takes a certain level of cinematic vision to choreograph you know a tractor trailer flipping end over end bouncing down a highway towards our protagonist who ducks at the last second as it veers over the camera. That I mean I challenge you to do that. It's not easy. So he he's got no. that. If for, for two hundred million dollars for two hundred million dollars I'll find a way. <laughs> let, let me let me play devil's advocate for a second and suggest that if Michael Bay didn't want to have characters in his movie that you cared about, he wouldn't have made three movies that had Optimus Prime in them, right? Like, because we all care about the reason he makes Transformers is because we care about Optimus Prime. It's kind of a little bit backwards. If you look through Michael Bay's list of movies that he's produced in the past like ten years. A lot of them involve characters that people really feel close to and, and identify with, like um, uh, like uh, Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, and and um, uh, the Transformers movies, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like it's like these stories that people can. It's like he's not. Cre- I guess he's not creating new characters that we connect with, but I think it's a misnomer to say that you're not supposed to care about the characters in Michael Bay movies. I mean, Michael Bay did Bad Boys, right? And Bad Boys too, and and that those movies are nothing but huge, booming. Like, be sympathetic to the protagonists of these movies, right? It's like it's like Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. You're really supposed to like them, really supposed to be into them. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, but but, I think, but but in those movies, you're really supposed to be into you're really supposed to be into Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, and not the characters that they're portraying. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that well, that's a good question, and I wonder whether there isn't something legitimate in that, right? Because think about sort of meta casting, right? Like, what is the actual entity that you're looking at on the screen? Is it a representation? Is it sort of supposed to correspond with a? So, okay, so say that you're watching Hamlet, right? And you you have like particular actors playing Hamlet. Let's just say, for the case of argument, Taylor Lautner is playing Hamlet, right? Um, and and so just because I think that would be hilarious, right? A generation of Shakespeare scholars just twitched. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you've got to get past your prejudices to talk about the issue seriously. Um, I mean, there's no reason that Taylor Lautner can't play Hamlet, right? I don't know if he can't play Hamlet. Um, but what, what is the thing that is Taylor Lautner playing Hamlet? Is that thing Hamlet? Right? Is that thing Taylor Lautner's character from Twilight and a, and a hybrid collab- connection with Hamlet? Is it something having to do with him, the actor, as an individual, distinct from the character of Hamlet? Like, where is the difference between the representation, the active representation that's going on, and kind of like the entity that the audience is perceiving? Right? If there is an entity, if there's like a relationship between the audience and the entity that is one of perceiving, right? Where the audience kind of takes in all the information that's given to them. Um, is the entity only something that exists inside the mind of the audience, right? Uh, it's sort of like a, a solipsistic way, right? Right? Like the, the performance doesn't exist outside of the audience that's watching it. Um, or would it be performance if Taylor Lautner were doing it on a street corner, right? Or if it were a crazy homeless person doing it on a street corner, which we've all experienced, he, right? So, like, yeah? Uh, allow me to play the devil's advocate for a minute. Okay, sure, go ahead. There are more lawyers in law school today <laughs> than there are practicing in the entire world. We're coming out, Kevin. Guns blazing. <laughs> God is an absentee landlord. 
He's a scientist. Okay, now to now to answer your question seriously, I mean, I think we can. I I think in kind of in in the the kind of normal process of living life, we recognize that different actors in in different situations are different things. Uh, you know what I mean? Like Taylor Lautner's Hamlet is a very different thing from Ethan Hawke's Hamlet, and that's a very different thing from. Uh, Oh, who else played Hamlet? Mel Gibson? No. Uh, uh, Pattinson, Pat- Robert Pattinson's Hamlet. I, there'd be a big fight between which Hamlet was better. <laughs> Robert Pattinson's Hamlet or Taylor uh, Lovers. Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh is Hamlet. You know what I mean? We can kind of, we can kind of uh, recognize a, a continuum of, of what the thing is, and it has to do with... Um, uh, it, I think it has to do with with what we perceive the intent of the you know of the creators to be, but um, but Hamlet is a good example. I'm glad that I'm glad that you bring it up because Hamlet is is a, a character where it's like Hamlet is not just a character. No one plays just just Hamlet. It's always my Hamlet. You know what I mean? It's always like uh, it's always this person, this this actor's this actor's Hamlet. Simon Russell Beale's Hamlet. Mark Rylance's Hamlet. Uh, Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. You know the the idea the idea being that. Um, the idea being that something is something unique is created in the fusion of uh, of the character and the the um, the part. Well, which it is, is why, which is why I think we should remake the Twilight movies with a bunch of, of you know serious actors, or I should say, quote unquote, serious actors. You know, I would really like to see um, Dame Judi Dench is that girl in Twilight, Bella. Name's <laughs> Bella. Do I have to send you another like uh, video clip with Paramore in the background and from YouTube in order for you to get it? Um, Rather, right. Rather, what you, what you say about about taking a particular work and approaching it with the desire to make it unique is true if you have quote unquote serious actors and serious directors producing it. But it is also possible to take a famous work and sort of come at it, you know, with, without the most serious intent. I'm, I'm going to segue here into the reason I was actually at the theater last night. I wasn't joking about that. I, I legitimately was, guys. Uh, to see a West Side Story, which is uh, on a Broadway touring company and uh, came through Boston and is still playing in Boston at the Colonial Theater. And it was good, but not really great. And talking over with the folks I saw it with, the consensus that we came to was that the people doing it didn't didn't really engage the audience they it wasn't it felt like they didn't have to portray the characters as interesting or dramatic because the audience came in knowing oh this is west side story so we kind of know what's going to happen so the the actors never really tried to make us care about tony and maria and the jets and the sharks and that whole fight they they danced really well they sang well enough for you know the standards of broadway but the, it wasn't a really engaging show and it was and a lot was kind of lost as a result was it the and one it, that was it the one with all the spanish in it yes it is that one and uh, part of the issue is that it also wasn't mic'd really well, so uh, a lot of the a lot of the dialogue was lost. But additionally, you know, if the if the actors had been had been portraying the characters a little more energetically, uh, in other words, portraying them for theater with bigger actions and slightly slightly exaggerated postures, it would have still been obvious to the audience, even if a line is delivered in Spanish, what the intent of that line is. But that wasn't the case in the in the production I saw. Now, granted, there were a lot of substitutes in. In this show, like they re- reeled off a whole list of, of different understudies and substitutes in the first act, and uh, the person playing Anita actually changed between acts, which was interesting. So maybe this wasn't the best show, version of the show to see, but it, it speaks it speaks a lot to the the seriousness of the craft informing you know how the audience is supposed to engage and. 
if we, now Transformers Dark of the Moon is not, you know, a classic story that Michael Bay is is lending his touch to, you know, it's it's completely invented. Except if you really consider it as like part of that that sort of limited pantheon of stories like I think it was I think it was Robert Heinlein who said there's really only three stories in the world. There's A Man Learns a Lesson, there's The Brave Little Tailor, and there's Boy Meets Girl. And you can combine them or reverse them, but there's, it really only boils down to those three. There's either, you know, someone has a growth experience, someone goes on a picaresque adventure, or, you know, romance and heartbreak and drama, etc. So if you consider Transformers 3D just another iteration in the in, you know, the, the limited pantheon of stories. And this is Michael Bay's take on it. And, and, you know, this is his story about Shia LaBeouf's character, whatever his name is, I can't even be bothered to remember, uh, discovering himself as a person, you know, against a backdrop of giant transforming alien robots destroying Chicago, then, you know, you, you can make the case that, oh, you know, Michael Bay has a real original vision for this story. Or you can make the case that, no, he's not taking it seriously. He's just using it as an excuse to show exploding robots in destroying Chicago. So, okay. Optimus, I just <laughs> met a prime nip, Optimus. <laughs> <laughs> Freedom is the right of every sentient being, Chico. Now, um, so, one of the interesting things about uh, about Transformers, the movie franchise, that I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about is Peter Cullen's presence, right? Peter Cullen is the voice of Optimus Prime in the three Transformers movies, and he's also the voice of Optimus Prime in the old animated series and the old animated movies, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, yep. So the idea that this is, uh, when you're talking about sort of, is this Michael Vay's version of Transformers, uh, is he retelling a story that's been told before, does it belong to a tradition, uh, and we're talking about sort of different characters kind of Hamlets. It is kind of interesting that we have the same actor playing the same character, right? And that we sort of can't let go of that. It's like, and think about it, if Optimus Prime had a different voice, and, and the only Transformers movie I really cared about was the first one. I cared about the first Transformers movie. I went to go see it. I liked it. Um, Transformers 2 didn't really interest me that much, but I sort of had gotten my, I'd gotten sufficient Optimus Prime on screen stuff done by the time I saw the first Transformers movie. Um, but if it had been somebody been, else You had been role, primed. I had been primed, yes, in fact. But if it had been somebody else in the role, I think a lot of people would have felt kind of gypped, which I think sort of speaks to there not really being a lot of freedom for reinterpretation of this specific story or kind of story, right? Like the, the, a lot of freedom for sort of reimagining and, and adding a new kind of like artistic spin on what a Transformers – I mean the Transformers movies are all very different than previous Transformers stories in a lot of ways, but there needs to be some sort of anchoring in the way that, in the, way that the, uh, the story is presented, right? Because these characters are, are, are not kind of ideals – I suppose that they're sort of like um, it's almost like it's almost like people actually believe they're real, right? It's like people think that Optimus Prime exists in reality, even if well, you tell even if they tell you that they don't, <laughs> um, and they're not willing to accept that he might actually be a person pretending to be Optimus Prime. You well, know what it, I mean? If we think about what's the reason behind bringing the same person who voiced the '80s cartoon back to voice Optimus Prime, it's well because there were people who had some emotional investment in the 80s cartoon and we want to capture that cachet we want to make we want to make those people feel the same way about this movie that they felt about the cartoon and the easiest way to do that is take the most distinctive protagonist father figure character use the same voice which is easy enough to do in in animation so 
that tells a lot about artistic intent. The intent, the intent is not to tell an original story, which is possible. I mean, Peter Cullen, great voice actor, not the only voice actor in Hollywood, not the only person with a distinctive voice. I mean, Kiefer Sutherland, he's getting up in years. He's got kind of a gravelly voice. He could voice Optimus Prime. You know, Ed, no reason. Edward Cer- certainly there Edward are Cullen, hundreds of sexy people. vampire. <laughs> 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 Certainly, there are a lot of people who could do Optimus Prime. I mean, to me, it's just sort of like, if, oh, I'm sure that the, the conversation was, oh, that guy's still alive? Yeah, get him. <laughs> I'm like, why not? It's, you know, it's, he was not expensive for these movies. So, I mean, uh, I, this you, poses, real quick, though, it poses an interesting question because the Smurfs is about to come out. <laughs> and like, it was the same generation of Saturday morning cartoons, right? The people who were watching those, like, also watched the Smurfs. And, and you know, are they going to bring back Papa Smurf yeah, as the I voice? There's, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a crucial... Um, uh, there's a crucial difference. The, the Smurfs was conceived, wasn't it, uh, primarily as entertainment. Transformers, like G.I. Joe, you know, like I, I, I think He-Man, uh, was conceived first as a toy, you know? And that, and that the, uh, the TV show was a, a way of marketing the toy, more or less. And it actually, right, it was made by the same uh, company, even, that made the G.I. Joe... Um, right that made the G.I. Joe cartoon, uh, made the Transformers cartoon. And so the idea that... That was like, just because the Smurf toy was really bad. Do you remember? They just stood there. They didn't move at all. There was, like, lumps <laughs> of plastic. They were really I mean, awful. I, I, had the, I had the Sky Commander's toys. Those were, those were great. It was about people uh, traversing a Grand Canyon-like uh, terrain by uh, shooting lasers out of, their, uh, out of their backpacks that became cables, and the cables became zip lines so that they could zip line from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other. And there whereas were, the, the sort of lasers that the Smurfs had were much less cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have some bad news for you, Josh. Uh, unfortunately, Don Messick, who voiced Papa Smurf, who also voiced Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo and Droopy the Dog and Astro the Dog, uh, among many other beloved animated uh, What an interesting characters. niche to have found. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and Boo-Boo, the, Boo-Boo the Bear as well. Um, and uh, he died in 1997, unfortunately. Wait, um, Scooby so. and Scrappy were voiced by the same person? Uh, that's I'm correct. So, like, emotionally torn by that. <laughs> He was also Hampton the Pig on Tiny Toot Adventures. Um, yeah, pretty wild, huh? And he was also in King's Quest VI, Air Today, Gone Tomorrow. So he's definitely jumping across genres. Was that, that was really the tagline? Yeah, do you remember those, yeah. those Sierra Online games? Those were great. Why are we not rich? <laughs> Seriously. You know why? Because we criticize what other people do rather than do it ourselves. Uh, that's why. Because we're like, oh, I'm so much smarter than everybody else. Go and talk about it. We don't speaking, actually. Speaking of criticizing what other people do, we have some listener feedback. <laughs> Great. Nice <laughs> segue. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was classy. Uh, so uh, this is from Leah. Uh, Leah here coordinates 36.12 latitude, 86.68 longitude. I think those are both po- meant to be positive numbers, which puts Leah in China. So this is Leah from China. Uh, I just recently went to see Atlas Shrugged and was wondering about your thoughts on the movie. After all, we arguably still live in the recession, and this was an uh, Ayn Rand movie. The same Ayn Rand, who is blamed in part for the overly capitalist de- attitudes of Wall Street when the financial crisis was in full swing. And she, uh, she quotes it. She references a Newsweek story. Um, does the relative success of the movie, the theater was almost full the day I saw it, suggest anything about, well, anything? 
about the rise of Tea Partyism, the future of low-budget built-in audience movies, the ability of objectivists to love anything Rand approved, etc. Finally, what are your opinion on characters whose sole goal is to advance a certain ideology uh, rather than actually to function as compelling characters? Um, although that may have been a product of the mediocre acting of the movie, says Leah. Uh, I suppose I have to close with a disclaimer that I never read Atlas Shrugged, having slogged through the first five pages before giving up entirely. So maybe the book is completely different in every conceivable way. As always, thanks for the great work you do both on the podcast and the site. Sincerely, Leah from China. So my initial reaction to Leah's question is terror. Because, uh, well, you guys, I don't know if you're paying much attention to international relations, but uh, China launched its first aircraft carrier today. Or not today, but sometime in the next couple of weeks it's going to be launched. And uh, ten years ago I took a class with a professor who told us that we, weren't, we didn't need to worry about China until they launched an aircraft carrier. So I've been freaking out anyway, and now I hear that there are theaters full of people watching Atlas Shrugged in China. <laughs> well, and it bombed in America, right? Like it didn't succeed at all. Right. No, it was it was terrible. And I hate to well actually you, but rather if if I, I put these into Google Maps and thirty six twelve eighty six sixty eight as Latin Lounge is not only in China, but it's in essentially the middle of nowhere in China, like vast wasteland, whereas thirty six twelve negative eighty six sixty eight is Nashville. Uh, it, oh my god, there are theaters full of people watching Atlas Shrugged in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Nashville has an aircraft carrier. That's that's what I, <laughs> I, that's what the I technology to do that without an ocean. Is- Leo, write us back. Tell us if you're from if you're from China or if you're from Nashville. Yeah, definitely. I think the uh yeah. at the end of her name suggests Nashville. But um the uh the I'm sorry, I'm blown away by that. The uh, <laughs> by what Nashville? The fact, no, the fact that the the theater was full. I grew up like an hour south of Nashville, so I mean that was like the city we went to when we wanted to have nice things. Um, and it was, uh, and it's it seems like a pretty sort of like progressive, like it's a country music town. So to hear that like there are packed theaters watching this movie when that apparently did not happen anywhere else except um, you know nowhere in the middle of nowhere in China. Uh, I'm just curious as to like what about is there is there it's a country music uh, parallel is uh, you know so Leah I can I can feel this one having read Atlas Shrugged probably at least five or six times uh, mostly when I between high school and and the middle point of of my college years and having seen the trailer of the movie and (laughs) (laughs) not having not having seen the the actual movie did you play Bioshock because that that gets you most of the way there. Yeah, I, Josh, I wrote an article for the site about the <laughs> Bioshock and Ayn Rand. OMG, did you not read my fa- fantastic blog post? We have articles on this site? <laughs> I know, I'm as shocked as you. But, uh, Leah, to this point, uh, Atlas Shrugged, while while not the best novel ever written, uh, which I, I think is, is safe to say, I've always thought, you know, while there's certainly a lot to criticize about it, it also has more going for it than some people would think. Like, there are a lot of people like, oh, no, it's absolute garbage. The morals are filthy. The writing is terrible. The characters are awful. And it's like, well, the morals are questionable. The characters are a little stiff, but really no worse than some of Dostoevsky. I mean, I, compared to the Brothers Karamazov, and it, it stacks up very similar. In fact, you can draw a lot of comparisons between how Ayn Rand, a Russian emigre, wrote, and a lot of Russian literature of you know the, the late 19th century. Like and, Tetris. <laughs> and, and, 
Tetris. I mean, yep. what is the Fountainhead if not a novel about the correct ways to arrange blocks? Really? <laughs> and then once you arrange them perfectly, they disappear, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, they, they, are, they are destroyed because you do not properly value the creator's place in society. But, <laughs> and then you have a space shuttle and they play the Russian song. <laughs> Wait, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it ends. But, uh, yeah, a, a lot of... Uh, so, I mean, you had a couple questions. One, one was, you know, I, I think about the relation between the, the quality of the movie and the quality of the novel and the movie, the, just the cast of actors that I saw in the trailer, you know, any one of them would have been a great guest villain on any given, you know, mainstream TV or cable TV action series. Like one of them would have been a great villain of the week on burn notice, but none of them really had it in them to helm what was supposed to be a major motion picture. So I think that was part of the issue. The other issue being that the movie was directed by the the same person who played the the big role of John Galt in the movie, which is kind of a cheap trick. Like, you know, oh, I'm directing the movie and I'm also going to cast myself in the most important role. Hope that's cool. Thanks, Mel Gibson. <laughs> thanks, Mel Brooks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mel Brooks knows how to do it. <laughs> no, th- thanks, Kevin Costner. But... Uh, <laughs> But in any case, you know, directed by someone who didn't really have a lot of direction experience, so the uh, the shots are all very, very static, you know, two-shot, you know, a- as you would see on a TV, uh, serial TV drama, but not as you would expect for a major motion picture, especially one which is supposed to have sort of an epic scope, as Atlas Shrugged does, because it goes from, you know, boardrooms in New York to, you know, these mountain passes in Colorado where these rail lines are being laid to, you know, this, this secret colorado mountain hideaway where john galt is plotting to destroy the world etc uh so the movie itself was not if it is possible to do a a faithful and interesting depiction of atlas shrug this movie was not it uh as to why it did so well in middle america uh, i'm just gonna bunt on that one and say uh tea party yeah sure (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I would say I would say that it speaks less to the ascendancy of any particular political ideology and more the uh, increased interest on behalf of political pundits and sort of political think tanks in other avenues for message distribution. So I think you're going to see a lot more direct, just as you see more direct political control of the news. And while that Roger Ailes stuff that came out this week is really interesting, you should go look it up, about the Nixon strategist strategy sessions that came up with the idea for Fox News and how it sort of is officially an arm of the – not officially, but it's like – strategically an arm of the political like the political party and not really like a coincidence that it does these things and i mean i think that we've seen it in the past we'll see it in the future more of a collapse in the sort of boundaries between what's directly controlled by political interests and what isn't you'll see more like um you know political parties and interest groups controlling television shows controlling internet sites um and, and not telling you when they're doing it right because atlas shrugged is i mean the, i think the way that it's positioned is as propaganda like the movie, right? They're not saying like, oh, this is a great story about trains. You should totally go see it, right? Like, like it's like, oh, this is like the political, philosophical, you know, really important movie. I mean, they didn't even advertise it with pictures for Christ's sake, right? It's like a corporate logo. So, yeah, like, th- this is a story about you know the you know what happens when the government pushes you know creative people too far, and. I want to. I also want to harken back to something we talked about with the the podcast where we talked about the Russell Brand remake of Arthur. Uh, the the question of you know why is this movie coming? Why is this movie about opulent wealth coming out now in the middle of a recession? Like who is this supposed to appeal to? And I think one of the things we covered in that podcast was the idea that you know movies like this are are supposed to be entertaining because they're aspirational. You know, audiences who are largely you know middle class or lower middle class are supposed to watch this and. 
envision, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have this limitless wealth and be able to live this playboy life? And similarly, I suppose the hope with Atlas Shrugged was that audiences were supposed to watch this and say, yeah, you know, I'm someone who's trying to make a buck. I'm someone who's trying to, you know, have a creative and productive life. And the government keeps, you know, pounding down on me and, oh, let's throw off, I don't know what the what the cause celebre of the week is, Obamacare or, you know, the, the auto industry bailout or something along those lines. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was that I presume was the hope by people in, you know, that wing of the of the pundit class and uh, outside of, I guess, Nashville or middle of nowhere, China. I don't think it really panned out. For a second, I thought you were talking about Michael Bay again. <laughs> yes, we're, we're supposed to watch this and aspire to being alien shape shifting robots who are capable of leveling skyscrapers. And it's like, oh, the government is really keeping me from transforming into my my new and ideal form where I can blast plasma cannons. Okay. Back to Bioshock. <laughs> uh, let's um, let's leave it there for the week. Uh, if you have anything you want to say, you can email us because apparently we're doing listener feedback now at podcast at overthinkingit.com. Uh, we'll get the voicemail working again. Uh, you can, I mean, it's not broken. You can leave a message and we'll get it. We'll get the, the playback on the podcast working again, too. So you can call us at 203 203 uh, t- 20 eat log zero one two eight two eight five six four zero one two oh three it's been a while it's been a little while wow that was that was a close one uh yeah um do us a favor and buy the uh buy the overview for independence day no don't do us a favor do yourself a favor it's not uh it does support overthinking it but we think we're giving you incredible value for the money pete um uh you did great work on that overview Oh, thank you. It was uh, a lot of fun, and, and I'm so sure did, people have fun listening to it. Josh, not so much. No, I'm kidding. Josh, you were great <laughs> as well. Thanks. Um, it's uh, it's dollar uh, ninety nine. You can get it at overthinking dot com slash store. Uh, you know, and what do you do for Monday to uh, do something patriotic? Well, watch ID four with commentary from Overthinking It. Uh, that's the overview. Uh, if you don't do that, uh, go on iTunes and give this show a rating. Well, if you like it, don't give it a bad rating. Um, give us a star rating, or or if you're feeling especially generous, leave a comment uh, on the page of this this show on iTunes. That helps surface us in the their uh in their podcast rankings it really does for those of you who have so far it has made an impact like our show has actually become more visible because of the the many nice comments and ratings that you guys have left we're yeah we're climbing the charts and i i uh i don't mean to be unappreciative by asking for it again and again but sort of week after week we have to turn out the numbers in terms of the people who are who are rating us who are leaving us nice ratings on itunes in order to be surfaced in the hot 120 tv and film podcasts on itunes (laughs) Which is if you go if you launch iTunes and go to the iTunes store and then see the menu for uh, for podcasts, if you click the little arrow that comes up next to the podcast menu item and scroll all the way down to TV and film and click that, and then you click show all because we're not about to show up in the first dozen. You know, you click show all. Uh, we'll be in the mid sixties or seventies. Uh, and it's all thanks to you. It's all thanks to you, the listeners. So, yeah, Matt, uh, we, we are still number one if you search for overthinking it on uh, the podcast and iTunes. <laughs> we're, we're holding that, that position down. It's us, and it is, it's us and some anti-abortion thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Oh, oh, yeah. oh. 
Um, I think. So, uh, <laughs> so there's that. Until next week, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't You say Michael Bay has a vision. You know who else had a vision? St. John of Potmos. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, do these new Transformers movies have associated action figures coming out with them? Because... What would those action figures even look like other than nightmarish masses of metal that shift constantly and don't turn into anything distinct? And, uh, mean, and like, Optimus uh, Prime has lips that move. <laughs> Which is They're weird. not toys. It's actually just production models out of Detroit. <laughs> I thought you guys were talking about Megan Fox for a minute, but then I figured out what was going on. <laughs> <laughs>